Hello and welcome to The Bipolar Feminist. I'm Nikita Ramkisun, and today we're talking about the male gaze in a general sense. This is not an in-depth analysis and we can go deeper into the topic at a later stage. Trigger warning. This episode makes mention of body politics, abuse and non-consensual sexualization. The male gaze is not about the way men look at things. Well, at least not entirely. The concept was introduced by feminist theorist Laura Mulvey and is now a key term in feminist film theory. Mulvey first used the term in the 1970s in her now famous essay Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. The male gaze is generally defined as the way the world perceives women through the lens of heterosexual desire. This aims to describe the objectification of women, their sole purpose of being visually pleasing objects to men and their transformation into objects of male voyeurism. While Mulvey used the term to highlight this phenomenon in visual culture, particularly in cinema, the male gaze influences nearly every aspect of our society. Her theories are influenced by the likes of Sigmund Freud and Jacques Lacan. By using their ideologies as political weapons, I know that Freud is problematic, but this is what she did. She also included psychoanalysis and feminism in her works. In her essay, Mulvey describes how deeply sexist the film industry is. Sadly, even though the essay was published in 1975, not enough progress has been made. The film industry still favours men. In fact, a report released by Plan International in 2018 highlights the prevailing gender imbalance in cinema. The research analysed 56 top-grossing films in 20 countries and aimed to educate about the lack of equitable representation of women on screen. It revealed that women leads in film are still more likely to be objectified. Indeed, 30% of women leads were showing wearing revealing clothing compared to only 7% of men. It doesn't stop there though. 15% of women as compared to 8% of men were shown partially nude and 2% were completely naked. Men made up only 0.5% of the statistic. These numbers make it obvious that the male gaze, the woman as a spectacle designed for heterosexual men, is still very much prevalent in today's society. Let's not get to the Bechdel test. Some other time. Naturally, the influence of the male gaze seeps into women's self-perception and self-esteem. It's as much about the impact of seeing other women relegated to these supporting roles as it is about the way women are conditioned to fool them in real life. The pressure to conform to this patriarchal view or to simply accept or humor it and endure being seen in this way shapes how women think about their own bodies, capabilities and their place in the world, and that of other women too. In essence, the male gaze discourages women empowerment and self-advocacy, while encouraging self-objectification and deference to men and the patriarchy at large. Since its inception, the male gaze has reached beyond the silver screen, to encompass how the female sex is portrayed and viewed in any context, from being catcalled while walking down the street, to being dismissed as gold diggers, or having hissy fits, or being hysterical. By extension, simply worrying about your appearance, Relative attractiveness, seeming too smart or how you will be seen can also fall under the guise of living under the male gaze. Additionally, the male gaze also dictates specific characteristics as the voyeur, the actor, the peruser, the active doer, the dominator to men and may even contribute to the stereotype that men are far more intelligent than women. Studies on gender bias and implicit assumptions show that many people, even without realizing it, assume that men are smarter than women and that negative depictions of women in media are partly to blame. The argument is that the male gaze controls the narrative, which is that women are not equal actors in the world, mind the pun. 
Instead, their agency is reduced to that of erotic or supporting object, with their value as female form and person reduced to how it appears to the male viewer and or how threatening or not it is to the stereotypical male perspective. Likewise, this viewpoint also confines the male persona to their specific role as a protagonist, aggressor, sexual pursuer, and consumer of women. The impact of the male gaze has always been internalized to a certain extent by all genders, and we may not always even be aware of its presence or how it influences our choices or the vision of ourselves and others. Part of my graduate degree was focused on analyzing how the male gaze affects representation of Indian women through the Bollywood tropes we see in popular Indian cinema. The all-encompassing prevalence of the male gaze in media also impacts real life, and we see this in our Indian cultures. We speak of the internalized male gaze. Women often don't realize how deeply they are brainwashed by our society's focus on sexual desirability or, in the case of Bollywood, piousness. When they look in the mirror, they judge themselves based on the internalized male gaze. This is something that I've experienced and something that even Simone de Beauvoir, author of The Second Sex, already stated in 1949. The young girl feels that her body is getting away from her. On the street, men follow her with their eyes and comment on her anatomy. She would like to be invisible. It frightens her to become flesh and to show flesh. This perfectly leads to the topic of sexual harassment. Because women are seen as sexual objects rather than humans, they are more likely to get sexually harassed and abused. Objects are not living beings. They don't live and thus don't feel pain. The constant objectification of women not only results in a society where their harassment is seen as normal, but also in a practice of self-objectification, which is the process of seeing yourself through the male gaze. We want to look good for men. We want to seem attractive to men. That kind of internalized misogyny is a vicious cycle in itself. And this can have serious repercussions such as body shame, appearance and safety anxiety, reduced concentration, or flow of experiences on mental and physical tasks, and diminished awareness of internal bodily states such as hunger, fatigue, and emotions. Think about when a girl is sent home from school because she is showing too much skin, thus distracting the boys from their studies or distracting the male teachers. Those teachers should not be looking at a child in school in that way. And this tells that girl that boys' education is far more important. A lot of society's most pressing concerns regarding women can thus be partially explained by the male gaze. Even when it comes to sexuality, patriarchal heteronormativity pervading women's stories is rife on screen and in real life, as characters are portrayed in an assimilationist fashion. They mostly experience monogamous relationships on screen, and some of them work toward obtaining the ultimate signifiers of heterosexuality, a house and children, and a beautiful kitchen. Cinema has always privileged patriarchal heterosexuality by representing any form of diversion from it as either abnormal or similar to heterosexuality, like the man and woman roles in a lesbian couple. For example, homophobia and discrimination are experienced in the worst ways in real life, but lesbians in films always have their straight male friend to save the day, and gay men are usually protected by their straight woman friends calling off the fight. The realities that we experience as part of the LGBTQIA community, such as having to perpetually out ourselves to teach straight people about gay life, are not represented. Such a representation does a disservice to many complexities of our lived realities, and the creation of a heteronormative narrative feeds into the male gaze of patriarchal standards as being the desired norm that we all are supposed to aim for in real life.
Certainly, there are many viewpoints on the impact and relevance of the male gaze and how it may or may not have morphed over the past 50 years, since Mulvey first brought the concept into public consciousness. However, many would agree that the underpinnings of the male gaze are deeply sexist, patriarchal and misogynistic, and that its influence continues to be pervasive. Additionally, for people in traditionally marginalized groups, the male gaze is an added burden. For example, women of color have historically been depicted as hypersexual by the male gaze, which adds another facet of the stereotype to the pervasive racism that we face. Similarly, the male gaze also fetishizes Asian bodies, portraying just say, a person like myself, a South Asian, as exotic, erotic specimens for male enjoyment. The blonde bombshell, also known as the ditzy blonde or airhead, is another common trope. From a feminist perspective, the male gaze limits and defines women in ways that are harmful and demeaning. Ruby Hamad, in her book White Tears, Brown Scars, goes on to explain these tropes very well in her book. On a larger scale, it works to maintain the patriarchal structure, which elevates the white male experience at the expense of women, people of color, and other historically marginalized groups. Seeing women and girls continually portrayed in this way by the male gaze perpetuates this vision. Particularly salient examples are images of little girls on dance teams or pageants dressed in revealing outfits, faces in full makeup and dancing in a sexualized manner. Instagram is full of posts by tween and teen girls in very short skirts, midriff tops or bikinis, posing with arched backs, pouty lips and blank or come-hither expressions, often with a group of them all pressed up against each other. While some aspects of these portrayals may be seen as powerful, sexual or beautiful, they also stem from centuries of visual objectification of women for the pleasure of men. Now, I'm not one to judge how women dress and how they portray themselves, but we always have to look at the intention and the impact that it has. Quite similarly, the white gaze has perpetuated the stereotype of brown women being both sexualized and hypermasculine, specifically black women in the case of masculinization. Whiteness is a pervasive context in post-colonial organizations that maintain its enduring presence through everyday practices, such as the perceptions of people of color who deviate from whiteness, subjecting them to bodily scrutiny and control. Understanding how the white gaze manifests is therefore important to understanding the marginalization of particular bodies in any organization or representation. We, therefore, center black women's narratives to examine the following research question. How is the white gaze enacted and experienced in public spaces, including film? There was a critical discourse analysis of 1,169 tweets containing the hashtag Black Woman at Work and identified four mechanisms of the white gaze whereby whiteness is imposed, presumed, venerated and forced onto black women's bodies. The conclusion was that the white gaze is used as an apparatus to enforce gendered, racialized hierarchies vis-a-vis -vis the body and how foregrounding whiteness deepens our understanding of marginalization in public spaces. This looks at embodiment perspective to understand how people experience marginalization in any organization via practices that control, regulate and punish specific bodies at work. Perceptions of black women's bodies in cinema illustrate how norms are rooted in whiteness and therefore confer privilege and power to members of the dominant groups, aka white men. As a system of power, whiteness dictates how bodies are recognized, scrutinized and evaluated. And this is mostly done through the white gaze. You can see it most often in organizations when a black woman is told that she is dressing unprofessionally, but white women who dress in the same way are not. 
You can see it in the way that hairstyles are perceived. You can see it in the way that black bodies are perceived as being curvaceous and therefore way too sexy, way too voluptuous for an organization to be professional. These hierarchies are rooted in white supremacy and benefit those with greater proximity to whiteness. These hierarchies are enabled through everyday practices that are rooted in whiteness while often masquerading as universal. How does this fit into the male gaze, you ask? White men dictate the hegemony in popular culture. White men writers and directors disseminate negative and sectarian images of both BIPOC cultures and women, of which, as mentioned previously, all viewers make meaning. However, the images read and internalized by marginalized people assist in our own oppression. Too often we learn what it is to be brown by reading popular culture images. These negative images of us, therefore, are made a reality by viewers through lived experiences and emulation of desirability and what is seen as acceptable to exist within white male parameters. The white male gaze is a set of practices that communicates whiteness and reinforces white supremacy and heteronormativity, as well as patriarchy. These practices are discursive, conveyed and interpreted through text, and socially enacted in everyday life, such as workplace interactions or how we view popular culture. Through these discursive and social practices, the white male gaze racializes people's routines, roles and relationships, which helps explain how whiteness manifests in popular culture and so does patriarchy. As the lens through which all bodies are seen, the white male gaze encompasses practices that reflect and affect how power operates. Theorists describe the white gaze as the ubiquitous system of surveillance, permission and exclusion that render black women as guests or strangers in white spaces. In this way, the white male gaze is a constant presence that projects whiteness onto black women. Moreover, it reinforces whiteness by dictating how black women are seen and what they are allowed to do and where they are allowed to be, physically and within society. The white male gaze, therefore, distorts how black women are seen, often as both invisible and hypervisible. As a result, women of color must invest resources to contend with the white male gaze in many spaces, and I would say in most spaces. The white male gaze distorts brown women and how we navigate the white gaze and at what cost. By centering brown women's experiences in and through our bodies, we can understand how whiteness and maleness is enacted and experienced on screen and in life via the white male gaze. In a nutshell, sexual objectification is the way in which most women's bodies are viewed as objects only deemed purposeful for male sexual interaction and gratification. What happens through the sexual objectification is that men objectify women's bodies, and even more so through the white male gaze. If the body fulfills certain requirements, it is hot. The male gaze represents women through the sexual desires of heterosexual male viewers, specifically white heterosexual male viewers. It depicts the woman's body and personality as an object for men to view, own, and conquer. And while there have been movements to counter this phenomenon, we have not yet reached a stage in this patriarchal hellscape where dominant narratives can be taken down without entirely overhauling how we see images. Thank you for listening. A huge thank you to my patrons for your continued support and for making this podcast possible. A special thanks to Professor Tenjiwe Meiwa, my mentor and graduate supervisor, for her guidance and knowledge on this topic. Should you wish to support me, please subscribe to The Bipolar Feminist on Patreon or donate directly to Nikki Starfish on Coffee. See you next week where we will be talking about the politics of brownness in the beauty industry.